Um, I'm Rick Donlin. Um, I'm a MedPeds doctor. I live in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about myself here in a minute. I've, I'm going to do something here, an illustration, and I've got some volunteers here. If you're on that row, you've agreed to help out. And so I'll also need, for those of you who are willing to do it, if you've got a, a Bible, either a on you know in your phone, if your phone's working in here, or, or I'll need about I think six or seven people to read biblical passages here in a minute, if that's okay, a few minutes. So need your help to do that. Let's pray. <clears throat> Um, Father, we believe the promise that you will give the nations to Jesus as his inheritance. Jesus, that you have earned that by virtue of your obedience, your incarnation, the suffering that you endured on our behalf, the blood that you shed, um, and mostly by the power of your resurrection, which declares with power that you are the Son of God forever. And we... Um, ask your presence here, and we ask for the helper that you sent to us to be working among us during this next 50 minutes um, for your great name's sake. And we pray in your great name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, again, welcome. Um, shameless attempt to connect you personally. Here's my family. Um, I'm from New Orleans. Yes, I used to be Catholic. It's true. Um, this is an off-color joke for this crowd. I'm going to try it anyway. I found out uh, 10 years into my 22-year marriage that my wife had a Chinese boyfriend. And that's how it always goes. There's a few, two worldly people who laugh right away. And then there's the Christian people who don't get it at all. Okay, so. And for the, the very small minority of you who are still developing your capacity to do abstract humor. That was a joke. Those are adopted girls from China, right? Okay, so, yeah, thank you. Yeah, okay. Oh, all right. So, briefly, before we get into this, this is going to be mostly the Bible about the Bible, because the Bible is the thing that God uses more than anything else to teach us and change us. And so, I met people when I was a first-year medical student in my hometown at, at LSU, and we made a pledge to each other to work together. And we have done that. We started a clinic in 1995 in the most medically underserved area of Memphis back then. This was the day the sign arrived, which was a culmination of years of praying and working together and being together in this journey. Um, this is a picture of our employee-wide meeting about a year ago. So the, the work has grown from a single clinic to seven, and about almost 300 of us that work and, and many of us uh, work and live in the communities where we have these health centers. So this is a great map. And this map is all about justice and injustice. This is a map by a guy named Eric Fisher. And Eric Fisher has done demographic maps of every major city in the United States. So wherever you're from, you can Google Eric Fisher demographic map. And every dot, if you can see the dots, is 50 human beings. And in my city, the blue dots are 50 black people and the red dots are... 50 white people, and you see there at the top, there's a little, those are the Latino people, the yellow dots. Um, there are only four Asians in all of Memphis, and two of them live at my house. <laughs> so we, we don't have, this isn't California or other places, we're basically a biracial city, and if you were to study any manner of health disparities, the breakdowns would be clear. Um, the, the burden of disease and the death and premature mortality. For instance, breast cancer is a startling example. 
A black woman with breast cancer is twice as likely to die as a white woman who has breast cancer in Memphis, Tennessee. And that disparity is worse in Memphis than all of the 25 cities in America, the largest 25 cities in America. Infant mortality is two and a half times higher in African-American population in our city than the white population, for instance. Okay, so the other sort of cheeky thing that we say when we show this map is that there are actually enough physicians, primary care physicians and mid-level providers, primary care providers for Shelby County. We live in Shelby County. It's just that they're disproportionately located. Okay, so in the areas where you see red, the providers are competing with other providers hoping to get patients. In the place where you see blue, the patients compete with patients hoping to get providers, to get physicians and nurse practitioners and PAs. And so this is an, um, a disparity, right? A disparity. Parity is equalness and disparity is a lack of equalness. And this is the face of it, the topographical face of it in where I live. Okay. And I, I forgot to update this slide. I did update it for the talk I did yesterday. So ignore the numbers and listen to the voice. 75% of our physicians live in the neighborhoods where we have health centers, and 66% of our mid-levels do that. Um, the dentists are a harder case, so I joked about that. But um, we began a decade ago to begin moving into the communities where we are, where our health centers are, and our health centers are the places where the need is the greatest. And so we get to live and work and church in the same neighborhoods in Memphis. Okay, and just, this is a, sorry, that, that, that's the before and after of my home, and I don't want to show you any more pictures or talk anymore about that. Uh, again, tired standard joke, can you pick out my kid in this picture? You know, okay, so, not too hard, right? Um, my kids, more than my wife and I, have lived cross-culturally. They have been the minority in the upside-down world. I don't pretend that their experiences are like African-American kids who were the pioneers of integrating schools 35 years ago. Um, we always, people like me and you, I presume, if we move to those communities, we have all sorts of options to go elsewhere if we don't do well, and so it's not a fair comparison. And I want you to hear what Brian Frickard said last night, what we all need to understand that it's not the people of God going into a place where God isn't before. Like when, as we've moved into the neighborhoods in Memphis, we always find disciples of Jesus there already. Okay, I told a story yesterday in my talk about my next-door neighbor who'd lived there for years who protected us and helped us and who was already a force for good. Two doors down the other way, there's a mixed-race couple that lived there for years, and they, they were loving and caring for their neighbors. They were Jesus people before we all showed up. So we're not the Messiah, but we, we can be the people of God. We can be the body of Jesus where there are problems and there are difficulties. Okay, so... This is how we do church. Um, it's a mess. It's great. We train residents, and all 16 of our family medicine residents are living in the communities where we have health centers. And many of the people who have started in our milieu in the inner city of Memphis have gone on to go to unreached people groups in very difficult places. And, again, that, that makes sense if you think about it. Lots of the same factors in play. Okay. So... Not sure why I have a picture of my city, but there's our city. Oh, that's why. I'm going to tell you a story, a vignette. So we are on the river, right? We're on the Mississippi River. 
Um, and there are bluffs, these very steep, high, um, grassy bluffs. And you can see that body at the bottom is my now 19-year-old son, Jack. And what we do is we go and we round up. Who's that? I think I saw her in here somewhere. Okay, yeah, there she is. All right, so we round up medical students who are visiting or PA or nursing practitioner students and people in the neighborhood and people in our house churches. And on the left side of that picture, you see some of the um, people who are in our house church who are Burundis, refugees from Africa. And we go and we find dumpsters and we find cardboard boxes and we go to the bluffs and, and we have free fun, okay? And so you go sliding down. Maybe you've done this, right? And it feels great at first. It's, it's exhilarating. You get speed going. But then, like, what is it? It's mass times acceleration or something like that. Like, you get about halfway down, and you're no longer in control, okay? And there's half a bale of grass in, your, in the crack of your bottom, and you're, okay? And you're flying out of control, and you invariably pitch, you know, and laugh and get grass stains, and it's fun, okay? And it's free. All right, so I was cajoling Jane there on the left, who was the 19-year-old oldest daughter of this family or in our house church. Jane, you got to do this. It's fun. Her younger sisters have been doing it. We were putting them on pieces of cardboard. Elizabeth had been down 400 times by that time. Jane wouldn't do it. She was afraid. And I was, I was relentless. I just went after her. Come on, you little sister. You're weak. And finally, I got a big piece of cardboard. I put another person. Well, you weren't on it with her, were you? Okay. So I... I cajoled her to the point where she headed down the mountain. It's not a mountain. It's a, it's a hill, all right? And then that formula that I mentioned earlier came into play. Why are you laughing? Okay, I wasn't laughing, right? Because her mom and dad were there, and I had just made her, against her better judgment and will, break her fibula, and I'm not an orthopedist, but that joint's supposed to be together. And when the fibula breaks, right, so that's actually a surgical problem. Okay. So we loaded her in my van, her dad and I. We took, we took her to Methodist University Hospital. We got put in that place where we've all seen, at least on TV, or many of us have been there, in the ER with the shower curtain between us and the patient next door. And oddly enough, this is true, the woman in the bay right next to us had the exact same fracture, a fibular fracture. I had nothing to do with that one. Okay? She was an older woman. And I know that because the orthopedic resident, right, the guy who does the real work, came in after an hour and a half or so. And I helped him inject both women's ankle joint and then reduce and splint both women's legs. And finally, at about hour three, the attending orthopedic physician came in. And he went into the curtain next to us. And I heard, because there's just a curtain between us, I heard him speaking to that woman and examine her and make arrangements for her to have the surgery that she was going to have to have to fix that the following week at the clinic that they operate in the suburbs. And then he walked out. He left. He had told the resident that the uninsured, because the African refugee woman was 19 and was no longer eligible for Medicaid, that she was going to have to go to the safety net hospital and probably the orthopedic clinic there could find a way for her to get surgery and she would likely eventually get repaired. And I didn't have the courage 
to, put, to tackle that guy on his way out. Now, Jane has friends in high places and healthcare people that know her and love her, and so she got fixed. But if she didn't have someone to go to bat for her, it may have been weeks or months before she had a surgical repair of a problem. Okay? So this is the reality of the American healthcare system. And some of us never know this exists because we always have insurance. This plays out over and over again every day in our country. And if you're at this conference, there ought to be at least something in the middle of you that says, that ain't, that ain't right. That's not just. That's unfair. All right, so I want to talk about justice, and we've got 35 minutes to do it. And again, we're going to talk about what the Bible says about justice, but I have to make a confession first. Okay, I was born in the South. I'm a white guy. I'm from an upper-middle-class background. I've never voted for a Democrat in a major election. Uh, you didn't need to know that, but um, <laughs> I'm just trying to tell you that I'm, I'm conservative. I'm a red state guy. I mean, my, to be honest, my politics have changed a good bit over the last 10 or 15 years, but I'm not now, nor have I ever been a member of the Communist Party, okay? <laughs> and what I used to think of from the place I came about justice was primarily about somebody getting what they deserved, meaning mostly the bad guy getting the punishment that the bad guy deserved. That was justice. All right, and I understood it in the Christian sense and that my sinfulness and my wickedness that deserved punishment went on Jesus. I'm very happy, ecstatic still about that reality. But that was the notion of justice that I had. All right, and I, I want us to know, and you probably already know this, that justice in the Bible is a multi-meaning word. And usually, when the word justice is attached to the Messiah in the Old Testament, it doesn't mean the bad guy getting what the bad guy deserves. It means fairness. It means equal chance or opportunity. It means that everybody gets a possibility of flourishing, that there's no unfair rules where the cards are stacked against anybody, especially the weak and the oppressed and the people who are vulnerable to being exploited. Okay, so... Equity, fairness, impartiality, equal opportunity, those are the sort of categories I want you to think about as we're looking at these passages. And I'm going now, with the help of some of my friends, to try to drive that home to you from the Old and the New Testament. Okay, and this is the story I told you about breast cancer mortality, and I told it at the wrong place. And I've already shown you my city. All right, one more point before we get to the Bible. For 18 years now... Well-meaning Christian people have shown up at Christ Community and seen the work that we're doing to serve the poor and have immediately questioned whether we're legitimately Christian enough. How do you share the gospel in what you do? Hey, I love, love the gospel. But this notion that conservative Christian people, and I just told you, I'm one of them, have, that either you're proclaiming the truth for people's souls forever, or you're just doing social work and they're all going to die anyway, eventually, right? It's crazy. It's, it's nuts. The power of the king of the universe, Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, is, yeah, is both of those things. 
Okay, it's meaningfully loving and serving people and raging against injustice and the partial distribution of goods and happiness in life. In his name, as we declare the power and freedom that comes through him and his cross. It's a, it's a mistaken dichotomy. Okay. All right, so here are our passages, and I've asked some of you to have Bibles out and be available. And now I need this row to come up. Come on up here. These people are representing the people of Israel. Okay? And I am Joshua. Stand here, please. Imagine them to be 12 in number, although they appear to be, what, 6 in number, 5 in number. All right. We haven't had a great show of it here. We didn't trust the Lord enough, but he still loves us. He's merciful to us. We're going into that promised land. He promised to your fathers before you, all the way back to Abraham, we're going to possess a land. You ready? All right, here's how it's going to go. It's God's land. He's told us that many times, but you're all going to get, you're going to get land. You get your own farmland, your own place. We're going to divide it up based on how many there are of you and how good looking you are or something else like that. Okay. So let's cross the Jordan. You ready? Bam! Throwing down Jericho. Hey, all right, spread out. Occupy the land. All right. Here they are, the people of God. Very nice. From Dan to Beersheba or whatever it is like that, right? From the Wadi of Egypt to Dan. They are occupying God's land. And he's given to them, he reminds them over and over again that it's his land, but he's given to them the ability to prosper. In this world, land is life. Okay? And over and over again in the law, particularly Deuteronomy, the second reading of it by Moses, keep the covenant and I'm bringing rains and your sheep are going to spit out more sheep like crazy, and the land's going to be, the rains are going to come. All these great things are going to happen to you. Don't keep my covenant. It's going to go bad. Okay, so here they are. They're in the land. Now I need a couple more volunteers. You, you ready? Come on, come on, come on. Okay, all right. So, yes, the two of you, please. All right, so what we have here, there's only two, but they represent three critical biblical peoples. This is a widow. I'm sorry about your loss. Yes. This is a combination orphan and alien stranger. I, I don't have a good joke for that. Okay, good. Okay. All right. So here they are, and they are disempowered, right? They don't have a man to protect them. A wife has lost her husband, and, and a child without a father is in great danger. And a foreigner who doesn't speak the language, who's in a new culture, who doesn't have the protection of, of the society around them, they're at risk of being exploited. Yes? Okay. Wonder about these people. Just find your wonder way. All right, who's going to read the first passage? Read it out loud. wanderers, and here are the good people of the nation of Israel. When you harvest, you're going to leave grapes around the edges. You're not going to go over. So that means in the field, remember the story of Ruth? In the field, these poor people who are at risk of starvation can go in under the protection of the Lord and these people and get some food. 
So did you do that? Did you get some? Yes. Good, great. Yeah. Yes. All right. And Boaz, it's such a beautiful story, protects them, right? Don't anybody lay a hand on that woman. She's a, she's a widow and she's a Moabitess. She's an enemy. She's like a Muslim woman in a burqa. Don't lay a hand on her. She's under our protection. Okay, that's so beautiful. That's what God does for the marginalized people. Who's got the next passage? Okay, loud. Thank you. All right, Brianna, I'm sorry, but you're, you've had a bad crop year. All right, and it doesn't say because the bow weevil ate her crops or the, there was a fire or she drank too much and didn't get the harvest in. It just says that she's in trouble. All right, so you now can go to any one of these brothers and get a loan, and they can't charge you interest. So pick out the most generous brother you think you got there. And, and they're treating you just like good. Very good. No extra for the acting. It's good. All right. Going to open your wallet there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. No interest at all, right? Good. Who's got reading number three? Good. Loud, loud. I hope you're hearing in these passages, there's always a reason at the end the Lord gives. Like, you were a slave, so remember people who are slaves. Like, remember, it's me who gave you the land. What's the promise at the end of this one, or the instruction? What does he say? All right. Well, sorry. We'll come back to it. It's because God, God says, I'm, I love you, and I did these things. And Okay. All right. So, Brianna here. It wasn't drinking again. We're not throwing that aspersion on her, but she, as soon as she got back on her feet with the loan, th- there was a fire in the barn, and she just she can feed her family, but she can't get it all done. And it's seven years, and she's still in debt, and the debt's really weighing her down. And she goes to, I can't read your first name, Susan, Susan and Susan's going to pour out grace upon you by doing what? It's okay. Your loan is forgiven. <gasps> wow. So does Sally Mae do that? Okay. Yeah, I took out a loan from First Wachovia. We used to call it First Wachalovia, right? <laughs> All right, that's amazing. Who wants to read the next one? I'll read it. Okay, loud, loud. If any of your Israelite relatives go bankrupt and they are forced to sell some inherited land, then a close relative, a kinsman redeemer, may buy it back for them. If there was no one to redeem the land, but the person who sold it manages to get enough money to buy it back, then that person has the right to redeem it from the one who bought it. The price of the land will be based on the number of years until the next year of Jubilee. After buying it back, the original owner may then return the land. But if the original owner cannot afford to redeem it, then it will belong to the new owner until the next year of Jubilee. In Jubilee year, the land will be returned to the original owner. All right. Because land is crucial to life and being sustained, and this 
like the land is everything, all right? And if you fall in such hard times that you even have to give up your land temporarily, that's what it is. It's temporarily. Okay, so Brianna, find another and just tell them you just got to, they got to give you a, yeah, sorry. David, 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 you don't have a closer kinsman redeemer to get it, so David's going to take your land. He's going to produce on it. At any time that you come up with the money, you win the lottery or something, you can buy it back, right? Okay. And David's not going to possess it for long. We've already heard why, right? Okay. Who's got the next one? Somebody. We haven't had anybody over here read a You guys believe in the Bible on this side of the room? <laughs> anybody? So, Sarah, which one was that? Was that? Sorry, I said 23. Okay, did we do? Deuteronomy 15. Yeah, somebody read Deuteronomy 15. Yeah, you got it? Good. If a fellow Hebrew, a man or a woman, sells himself to you and serves you six years, in the seventh year you must let him go free. And when you release him, do not send him away empty-handed. Supply him liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. All right. That was out, outstanding reading, by the way. Did you? Yeah. Okay. So follow the, the line here. If you're in need of capital, you can get a loan without having to pay interest. If the loan goes longer than seven years, you're not going to get crushed under it. You'll be forgiven of the loan. If you have to sell even your service, and don't think slave the way American context of slavery was, think indentured servant who says, I commit myself to working for the well-being of your household for a time. But just like the loans have to be forgiven at seven years, they have to be released. And not just released, but released with the means to get a new start. Right? Okay. We read about the Jubilee, or did we not? Okay, so this is the most amazing thing. Every, so every seven years you've got to forgive and release. Every seven-seventh is the year of Jubilee, where if you lost your land, your ancestral land, it's the key to you and your family's prospering, it returns to you, no matter what. No matter what the price was it was sold or the circumstances. Because it's the Lord's, and he gave it to the people of Israel, each to their families, and it returns. All right. Then Sarah read about the courts, and it was, this is just, I put it in there to make sure you understand, like when there are disputes, according to the law, everybody gets the same treatment. And you can't exploit the poor, and you can't exploit the foreigner in the courts of law. There has to be impartial justice and protection for everyone, especially the vulnerable. Okay, so I've had experiences in my environment when people from the neighborhood who don't have resources are in the courts, they don't play on the same playing field as people who have resources. If I get arrested and I have a lawyer, which has never happened, okay? I'm not casting the first stone here, but I'm not going to be at the same mercy of the court that a person in the neighborhood that I live in will likely be. I will have protections that they don't have. And if I were from another culture, I'd be in an even worse situation. All right. Someone read the very last one. Yes, sir. Yes, which is a summation. Please applaud for the nation of Israel. All right. So 
think through the repercussions of what we just said. In the only time in history when human beings were supposed to be ordered by the very person in command of God, under the Torah, under the covenant, which I understand we don't live under now, these were the rules. And there was no way, honestly, if you think about it, for people to become permanently very wealthy. And there was, there was no way that someone would be permanently very poor. Okay, think about it. If you have access to loans without interest, if even your debts will be forgiven with regularity, if your servitude will end with an ability to do better, if even you lose your ancestral land, it will be eventually returned to you, you're not ever going to be stuck in poverty. Okay? And similarly, ain't no Donald Trump in this world, right? Because you've got to loan without taking interest, and you've got to release people of their debts eventually. And you can't keep their property. You have to return it. This is the system that the living God created for his people. Is there private property in the system? Absolutely. Are there variations in people who work harder or not hard and consequences that go along with that? Certainly. But there's a big, fat middle of the curve where everybody can prosper. Because you were slaves, and I gave you this land, and you conduct yourself this way. I'm the Lord. It would guarantee justice, a fairness. Not necessarily absolute equality, but fairness. Equal opportunity, equal protections, equal shot at prospering. All right, we're going to race through the Gospel of Luke. I went through the Gospel of Luke looking for themes about this many years ago. It was when I was doing work on this curriculum for CMDA, and I found two themes that came back over and over in the Gospel. This is deliberately kind of creepy, this picture, right? (laughs) So here are the two themes that come up over and over again. I'm going to show this to you. Oh, it's a little nervous. I just... Look away, look away. Okay. <laughs> All right. The necessity of caring for the poor and the dangers of wealth and money. Those are the two themes that I'm going to take us through quickly that the Gospel of Luke is going to pound in our heads here as we look at it. The necessity of caring for the needy and the poor, number one. Secondly, the dangers of wealth and riches. Remember, this book is written by God, right? By the Holy Spirit. This is from chapter 1, the beautiful Magnificat. Mary says, From now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with His arm. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things but has sent the rich away empty. Luke chapter 2. You'll understand this in a second. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Is that really what the sacrifice is in the law? It's actually a lamb. Why did they use two birds? Because they were poor. You guys are so smart. If she can't afford a lamb, she's to bring two doves or two young pigeons for a burnt offering. She'll be clean. Why do I bring that up? 
Because when God became flesh and dwelt among us, when the maker of the universe took on incarnation, he did it as a poor person. John the Baptist, the prophet of prophets, screeching at the people, screaming at them, demanding their repentance. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we are Presbyterians and we understand the Westminster Catechism of Faith. Oh, that's not what it says, is it? We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. This happy message from John the Baptist. Okay? And John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit powerfully upon him, got what prophets don't usually get in the Bible. Actually got people with broken hearts who wanted to repent. And they said to him, what should we do then? What did he say? Does anyone know what he said? What was the first thing he said? Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. What is the evidence of repentance that will be evidence of you being spared from the great and glorious day of the Lord? At least part of it is your willingness to share your possessions. Chapter 4, Jesus presents himself after successfully going through his time in the desert, his trial, his temptation to the hometown synagogue, and he uses as his inaugural sermon a passage from Isaiah 61. stood up and read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When Jesus is beginning his ministry, his proof, his identification, that which he says, now you've read the scriptures fulfilled in this, is the character of the Messiah. This is who I am and this is what I do. And what me, Mr. Conservative Republican, has done for all my life is spiritualize this. Oh, he's setting people free from spiritual bondage. Oh, yeah, 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 he does that. The Messiah, the Lord, is also concerned about people's well-being, their physical well-being. And if you have any question about that, you can read Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, because it's really a little different than Matthew's. You know, Jesus preached for three years. He delivered messages in different ways. He's got Beatitudes also, but he doesn't say poor in spirit. In Luke's Gospel, he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, not hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's the one I memorized from Matthew 5. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you'll be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you'll laugh. And to make the point clear, Luke has complimentary curses associated with the, beati- with the blessings. Woe to you who are rich. You've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you'll go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you'll mourn and weep. Chapter 10. On occasion, an expert in law stood up to test Jesus' teacher. He asked, what must I do to inherit life? Jesus said, well, you know the law. What's it say? And the guy answered wisely. He quoted the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, okay, pal, you got it. Go and do that, and you'll live. And he said, to justify himself, who is my neighbor? 
Right, and then we get maybe the most famous story in all the Gospels. Hey, the neighbor wasn't the two religious guys, priests and scribe, who walked on the other side of the man suffering. The neighbor was a guy from another culture, really an enemy, who actually took his time and resources and energy to care for someone against cultural barriers and at personal loss. You want to obey the law, Mr. Smarty Pants? Don't forget that part of it. Luke 12, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So someone understands Jesus as a wise rabbi and wants him to get in the middle of a family fight over an inheritance. Jesus says, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. I'll leave it to you. This is your homework assignment to read Luke 16 sometime soon. It's entirely about the two themes that I'm talking to you about. The first half of the chapter is the most difficult parable, I think, in Jesus' stories. It's about the, the, basically the crafty manager who figures out he's going to lose his job and then uses his waning influence to gain things for himself. Any way around it, it appears that, that the smartest person in the world is telling us God owns everything and he's temporarily giving you charge of it and you ought to use it for your good. And that means doing good things for other people. And the final part, the most frightening story, I don't think it's a parable. I think it's maybe even an account of an actual person, a rich man who's living in luxury every day, dressed in purple, dining sumptuously. And at his gate is a poor man, a beggar, who longs to fill himself with the crumbs that fall off the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his wounds. What happens in eternity for those two people? And the punchline of that story is, after the rich man realizes it's too late for him and he asks for someone to be sent to his living brothers, the answer that Abraham gives is, your brothers have the law and the prophets. They can listen to that. They know about all this stuff we did out here, about what's supposed to happen to poor people and loans and forgiveness. They should listen to that. And the rich man says, well, if someone comes from the dead, this is the humor of Jesus. If someone comes from the dead, they'll believe it. No, no. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe it even if someone comes from the dead. For the, for the Messiah, a big fat part of the law and the prophets, Mr. Teacher of the Law, Pharisees who are always listening to everything he said, is care for the poor. The danger of wealth. All right, we're not going to touch on rich young rulers and Zacchaeus up in the tree who demonstrates his repentance by giving away or the, all of the angles of the widow. That's the Gospel of Luke. That's the two creepy themes. Let me state them again. The necessity of caring for the poor and needy and the dangers of wealth. All right, so I have a question. 
And this is where the question is coming from. I, I found in 16 of the 24 chapters of Luke significant parts of those two themes in 16 of 24 chapters. I went back and I read it looking for references to sexual immorality, which is wrong. Okay, sexual immorality is wrong. You know how many I found? Two. Neither of them developed very fully, to be frank with you. Okay, so if the Holy Spirit wrote this book, there's a, there's a concept of biblical proportion, like the things that get repeated over and over again are more important. These are the themes of God. This is the message. This is like the professor saying, this is on the test, right? All right, so in light of that, I want you to imagine that there's a prominent person in your church, and you find out that twice a year he goes to Thailand for sex vacations, that comes out in the church. How's it going to go for that guy? What's going to happen? I mean, we hope that he'll repent and he'll be brought back into the fellowship, but the hammer comes down on that guy, right? All right, second part of the question. There's a wealthy physician in your church, and he makes as much money as he possibly can for himself, and he gives away, as evangelicals do, less than 3% of his resources, almost none of it actually to the poor. What happens to that guy? You make that guy an elder. While you stand on the New Testament as your authority. Justice is at the heart of the Bible. Justice is at the heart of the king and his kingdom. We don't believe that. When we hear a story like Jane's that I told you, we see it in our medical training, we just assume that that's the way it is. That it's okay for one group of people to get one set of services and opportunities and another group to not. We look at our public education system in our cities and we see people with resources and motivation can get any number of educational options for their kids. And 106,000 poor black kids in my city get nothing. They get failing schools. And Christian people don't do anything except start new Christian schools. By all means, we have to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ's lordship and the power that he has displayed with his resurrection to defeat sin and death, his return and his glory, It's the greatest news in the world. But the other part of the kingdom of God is justice, fairness, equity. And the church of Jesus, the body of Jesus Christ, has to have that other rail of our train that that sees those things and understands them to be displeasing to God and a poor reflection of the kingdom of Jesus and fights against them. And those two rails, when they're held in the tension that they are, there's some tension there. That's the, that's the way the train really rolls. That's historically how the church has exploded. When you read these third century Roman emperors saying, these, these godless Galileans, that's you and us, they, they care not just for their own poor, but for our poor too. They're scooping up abandoned babies and taking care of them. The The centuries-old tradition of our faith, of our people, is to simultaneously declare Jesus as Lord and to love and care for the needy and the oppressed. Both. 
your role in this world as a disciple is to advance the values of your king's kingdom. And in healthcare, there ought to be many of us, more than there are, who are looking to change this two-tier healthcare system, who are dissatisfied with it, who see it as an affront to the glory of Jesus in his kingdom. I think I'm going to stop there. Um, I'm sorry that I yelled. <laughs> um, are there pushback or questions? Or we have four minutes to talk before we're supposed to be done here. And yes, ma'am. So don't use your head, but your shoulder, you just. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, my short answer to that, honestly, is um, for the first five or so years in Memphis, I spent a lot of energy trying to talk to the older physicians and people. And I finally concluded this might be the wrong conclusion, that that was that the place to do it is here when people still remember that essay they wrote to get into nursing school or, or the deal I made with God to get through organic chemistry or whatever it is. <laughs> right? Yes, sir. I think, you know, in the American context, we don't have to use Christian language, although I think still there's some of it that would still be effective in some places. Where I live, it's still effective. But, I mean, the, the reason we now recognize slavery was, was a great shame on our nation is because we have these forming documents that say all people are created equal. Everyone's entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And this is an equity fairness issue. So if you're influential and powerful in these organizations, then you advance the values of your king however you can in, in powerful places. But that's, that's sort of our mistake, I think, honestly, in the last hundred years in this country. Is we've tried to rule from the ascendant position. When the church has been most effective, frankly, and it spread the most wildly, is when it was under the heel of power and authority. When it was coming from weakness and from the bottom. You know, China doesn't have 100 million Christians now because we had a brilliant Western strategy. All the Western missionaries got kicked out. And under the heat of communist persecution, the Holy Spirit moved in those people and created a tsunami of, de- of believers. How did the Vikings get saved? By their slave women that they took after they slaughtered the husbands, the Christians. How, you know, our advancing in the history of our world is many, many more times from weakness and and the bottom than from the top. Our influence in politics is fading. Have you noticed that? Yes, ma'am.
what challenges have I had in raising family and sending kids to inner city schools in Memphis? So, Lauren, if I told the truth about that, no one would ever listen to anything I said. <laughs> um, the, 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 the honest truth is, and there are people who know my kids here, and two of my kids are here this weekend, if you see them walking around. Um, and you can examine them for scars if you want to do that, okay? They don't, they don't have them. Um, in balance, where we live and the way we've raised our children thus far has been far more good for us than bad. And there have been bad things. I, mean, I think the woman who spoke to us earlier, she just spoke so much truth. It's turning away from fear and trusting that the love of God, even through trials and suffering and difficulties, is a way of moving us towards faith and fruitfulness. And that we, we have to go through those difficulties. And the more we're willing to risk the things that are dearest to us, the easier it is for him to get through our hard heads. It's not a direct answer, but... Every year, every kid, we decide about school, and we've never seriously considered leaving the community. We've been there for 10 or 11 years now. The cooks over here could answer that question, too. There's a bunch of people in this room who've got the same experiences. And Thank you. It's 2.20. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.